This podcast is a production of Phoenix Media. Explore more episodes of this show and other great shows on the Phoenix Media Podcast Network by visiting phoenixmedia.us. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the company or its advertisers and may contain language that's unsuitable for younger listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater. I'm your host, Christian Phoenix. Now, growing up as a comic book fan of the 80s and 90s, I've always been fascinated with how storytellers translated these iconic heroes from the page to film, television, and radio. Long before we got the big-budget CGI epics we enjoy today, children gathered around their radios to hear their favorite do-gooders come to life with little more than their imaginations and these broadcasts from a time long forgotten. I invite you to gather around your radio for this presentation of Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater. Yes. 
A year old, and as sound as a nut. Sleeps through gunshots and everything. He's a darling, isn't he, John? And the picture of you. Nothing of the sort. He looks exactly like you. Oh, oh yes, he does, dear. Why, he has your eyes and that sweet little smile of his. Oh. Why, that's exactly <laughs> like you, that something would happen. It's all silly, I know, but, oh, I can't escape this dreadful feeling. You're just nervous, that's all. Why, any day now we'll wake up and find a boat in the bay, and you and I and the little chap there will go sailing back to England. It's been two years now, and there's been no boat. Two terrible years, John. Why, I can't understand this in you at all. Oh, buck up, my girl. Don't let it get you this way. Oh, I'm sorry, John. It's like a terrible threat hanging over. Listen to the jungle now. Why, there isn't a sound. No. That shot quieted them for a little while. But the silences are the worst of all. The silence means... That something awful and dreadful is passing through the jungle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, John. I hate to show the white feather like this. And I shan't do it again. Now, there, that's a promise. White feather? Oh, why, Rob. You've been marvelous, Alice. This infernal jungle is bound to get you once in a while. Come on. Kill me, forget it. Lively, sir. John. Which one of our neighbors is that? A boy. The apes I hate worst of all. They're so human and yet so far from human. Those long, powerful arms. Their awkward gait and the terrific speed in which they swing and leap from branch to branch. They are nasty beggars. That one you shot yesterday. Oh, those nasty, close-set eyes and yellow fangs. Come on now. Oh, forget it. (laughs) 
Again the cry of a huge bull ape. A brutish creature of terrible strength and awful temper. The ape has suddenly gone mad. Raging, foaming mad with that peculiar madness which suddenly seizes bull apes and quickly passes. He's running rampant among his people. The younger and lighter apes are scampering to the highest branches. Kayla, a young female, comes into the clearing. Her baby is clinging to her neck. She doesn't know. She doesn't know that Bolat has gone into one of his terrible rages. Oh, it's Cypher. The others yell hoarse cries of warning. She's turning down on her. She leaps from branch to branch. She has her by the ankle. She breaks loose. Up the tree she goes. Bolat behind her. She makes a horrific leap to another tree. She, she makes it. The dog tears her baby stripped loose from its mother's neck. It falls. Falls to the ground with a thud. Bolat's roaring goes fainter. Fainter. As he hurls his powerful body through the trees. That bull ape is certainly doing a lot of boasting tonight. He, he sounds very close, John. Oh, he's miles away. Those bull apes have tremendous lung power. This is sound. Yes. John, it's getting a little cold. I think perhaps we'd better build a small fire. Baby sneezed this morning. All right. I want to go out and drag that lion into the shed anyway before the hyenas get at the skin. John, have you noticed how deathly still the jungle has suddenly become? Mm, just a lull. Uh, where's the axe? Over there in the corner. Just a few sticks will do, John. Just enough to keep the chill off. Right, oh. Be back in a second. Aren't you going to take your rifle? Oh, I'll hardly need it. Just going out to the shed. I'll leave the door open. The light to keep any animals away. All right. You know, every time I open the latch on this door, I'm impressed with myself. <laughs> well, it's quite an invention, Alice. <laughs> yes, dear. I, I have admired it before. Oh, no. Now run along and get the wood. Yes, all right, <laughs> The sound of gray soaked axe. Echoes through the strangely silent jungle. Greystoke doesn't notice the fearful tenseness of the silence. The jungle is cringing. Cringing away from a monstrous shadow which moves ominously through the hushed and fearful night. A huge ape comes to the clearing. It is Bolat, the crazed derelict of the jungle. He halts. His insane bloodshot eyes catch sight of the unsuspecting Greystoke. They gleam hatred from beneath shaggy brows. He bears his fangs as though in a horrid snarl, but no sound comes from his great throat. Slowly, noiselessly, the 350 pounds of stifled rage moves across the clearing. Holds upright, his mighty arms dangling loose at his side. A shadow falls across the log which Greystoke is chopping. He looks up into the beastly snarling face of the brute. The ape makes a lunge, Greystoke. Ah! Has closed the door. Greystoke raises his axe, brings it down with terrific force. The ape catches the axe in his terrible hands and flings it from him. With bared fangs, he leaps at Greystoke. Something right here, uh huh. It's the Loot Crate subscription box, yeah, full of exclusive loot on surprises delivered to your door every month. Just pick up your favorite geeky genre, Daddy. <laughs> 
from the original Loot Crate. The Loot Crate DX collectible boxes, dude. Cowabunga! To the Loot Gaming video game box. Woohoo! Yeehoo! Browsers! With crits starting as large as 11 99 per month, those are facts just about for all collectors. To get your geek on, head over to phoenixmedia.us forward slash loot crate and claim your exclusive offer. That's f-e-n-i-x media.us forward slash loot crate. Great Scott! Snap into a loot crate, it. You're tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater, presented by Phoenix Media. Continue with Edgar Rice Burroughs' famous story, Tarzan of the Apes. Greystoke throws himself flat on his face. The ape runs his path. Greystoke regains his feet. The ape is faster. Greystoke is running for the hut. The great ape from one powerful leap cuts him off. It's too late. Oh. Both horrible, hairy hands are reaching for him. Greystoke turns. His face is a horrible mask of terror. He looks into those inflamed, raising eyes. All that voice is a terrible cry. Oh. A cry dreadful to hear. He screams. The man crushes his fist into the hairy face. It serves only to infuriate the brute. The huge mouth of the ape opens. The yellow fangs gleam. Great oh, struggles suddenly to escape the mighty clutch. I am hot as it in the bull ape is on the man's face. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, the end. Oh, the end. Oh, there's no now. A shot. From where? Great ape screams with pain. Slowly the great body sags until it drops on all fours, motionless. Greystoke watches the flame go out of the great beast's eyes. With a sighing grunt, the great man-beast of the forest topples over death. Its jaws fall open. Its eyes grow cold, glazed. For a moment, Greystoke stands in frozen horror and wonderment. Then slowly realization dawns on him. His wife had shot the brute. He whirls and staggers to the cabin. Oh, it's all right, dear. You shot him. Oh, else? Where's the water? Where's the water? Oh, God. There, darling, there. Everything's all right. It's all over, dear. It's safe. And the brute is dead. Oh, the beast, the beast. Now, Sherry, now. Everything is all right. He's dead, dear. Uh, don't get excited. Relax, darling. You're a little hysterical, that's all. Just a little hysterical. While Greystoke is trying to soothe his wife, miles away from the little hut on the seashore, the death cry of Bolat came to the keen ears of the ape tribe. Some of the apes are grubbing at the roots of trees. Young are tumbling over each other in the clearing. Some are swinging indolently from branch to branch in search of fruit. The cry reaches their ears. All pause. All are silent for a moment. 
they recognize the death cry of one of their kind. As though one accord, they gather in the clearing. The females and young chatter excitedly. The males grumble. The hair on the back of their squat, powerful necks bristles. They hold a chaotic conference. One giant beast assumes command. He is Kerchak. Another male of huge proportion disputes him. In a few moments, one of the two special half-men will be the ruler. The other will be a torn and battered victim. The two contestants stand facing each other. The tide makes a great circle. The greater of the apes emits a fearful cry, which echoes through the jungle of silence all within hearing distance with its ferocity. It is a challenge. With a snarl of rage and hatred, the smaller one hurls himself upon his opponent, burying his fangs deep into the other's shoulder. With a cry of rage and maddening pain, the greater ape smashes the other in the face with his open hand. Without a pause, without mercy, he's upon him again, fighting for a hold. The smaller ape is more agile. He eludes for a moment, but only for a moment. He's upon him again. Again, the smaller ape fights ducking out with a savage blow. The greater ape catches his arm, breaks it with a snap. Howling with pain, the smaller ape turns to stand the other's boots charge. He knows it'll be his last. He's still on his feet, only by the intensity of his dogged animal will. Triumphant, snarling, horrible to see, the brute advances. The others attack a funeral against him. The fighting arms affect him not at all. With a roar, the great beast is about him again. Gasping, he shrieks to defeat. The victor picks up the battered form and hurls it through the earth again and again and again. Then, satisfied, he voices his cry of victory, telling the jungle that he is the ruler of the tribe. No one disputes his claim. The rest of the tribe resume their chattering. The new ruler is issuing his first command. He gestures, rumbles. They all understand and take to the trees after him as he starts off through the jungle on his way from whence came the dying cry of Bolat. And in the little hut that Lord and Lady Greystoke built, we find that Alice has recovered from her fright. Oh, John, John, you're alive. But it's only good fortune that you are. That was a lucky shot. Well, that was a good shot. Well, there's some good luck or good marksmanship. Oh, how I hate the jungle. Oh, now, Alan, that probably won't happen again in a million years. But this is the first time one of those beggars has even really attacked us, you know. Yes, I know. But I'm so tired of being afraid. And I'm even more fearful since the baby came. No, hush, dear. As long as we're in the hut, we're safe. It was foolish of me not to have taken my rifle when I went out. I'll be more careful after this. And there won't be a thing for you to worry about, dear. Not a thing. John, dear, will you please see what's the matter with you? All right, Earl. What is it, lad? Any complaints to make? Is he covered up? The eyes... Oh, I see. He's sleeping on that wooden doll I made for him, and he finds it jolly uncomfortable, too. There. How's that? Fine. <laughs> now go to sleep and let me hear no more out of you. Oh, is that so? Well, tell me about it in the morning. <laughs> John, have you ever wondered what the baby will be like when he grows up? Very much like any other English boy, I imagine. Oh, no, he won't. Not living in the jungle all his life. <laughs> Nonsense, dear. He isn't going to live in the jungle all his life. Why, long before it's time for him to go to school, he'll be picked up. It's only a matter of time. Two years. And not even a sight of a ship. No. I'm afraid that your optimism is commencing to ring a little false. <laughs> Nonsense. 
You're just upset after what's happened tonight, that's all. But even if we were doomed to stay here forever, it isn't so bad, you know. We've plenty to eat and we're comfortable. Yes, I know. But it's always living in fear of the jungle. However, there's no use hopping on it, is there? No, of course not. Try to forget about it. Yes. Yes, I must. Would you mind closing the door? Mm, Righto. When Greystoke stepped to the door, the door he was never to close, he came face to face with a tribe of foolish, hairy figures. My rifle, quick! In an agony of haste, John tried to close the door in the face of the great ape, but they thrust it open without effort and stood for a moment, blinking in the light. The rifle, hurry! On the table! Don't come near, throw it! No, don't, don't bring it! Throw it, I can catch it! One great oak, he travels over dead. The other, maddened with fright and rage, surge into the room, over giant tables and chairs. The gunner went from great oak's hands, and he's disappearing into the crypt. A feeble cry is heard. Kayla, the great female ape, he still touches the body of a dead baby to her breast. Let's not a cry. She drops her baby into the crib and snatches the human baby. Touching little Lord Greystoke to her shaggy breast, she huddles with him in the corner, protecting him from the fury of the tribe as they demolish the contents of the hut. Hours later, the cabin was silent. The jungle had taken its toll. Kayla, the great she-ape, departing, bears alive and wailing the little son of Lord and Lady Greystoke into the jungle fastness, where a strange destiny awaits this boy who will become the mighty Tarzan of the apes. You're tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater, presented by Phoenix Media. chapter of Edgar Rice Burroughs' amazing history of Tarzan of the Apes. The astounding record of a superman who became the master of beasts and a mighty monarch of the African jungle. By the grace of a kindly God and the tender care of Kayla, at whose breast the little son of Lord and Lady Greystoke was nourished, Tarzan grew to young manhood. From his natural parents, he had inherited fineness and intelligence. And from his foster mother, Kayla, and the ape tribe, he had acquired tremendous strength, amazing agility, and animal cunning. And some twenty years since his abduction, we find Tarzan swinging through the jungles, a young man, splendid both in his youth and manhood. Carelessly, Tarzan's body swings from branch to branch. There's an easy grace about his perilous leaps and accurate catches as he progresses from limb to limb, which suggests both the assurance of the ape and the flowing, rhythmic grace of a trained trapeze artist executing an often-rehearsed feat of daring. Tarzan off on a holiday. 
He's returning to the one place in the entire jungle that is his own. A place he had discovered long ago. A tiny hut on the shore of the great water. It has taken him many years to learn how to manipulate the odd mechanical thing which had swung open to him the door of that hut, which he would have been surprised to learn was the home of his mother and father and his birthplace. However, the door of that hut had opened to him more than the interior of the rude cabin which Lord Greystoke had built for his wife and son. It had taught him that he was an M-A-N, not an A-P-E. It had taught him to read and write after a fashion. For hour after hour, year after year, he had poured over the first primer which he found there. But perhaps more important to his physical being and survival, it had given him access to the hunting knife which hung at his side and the locket which dangled from his throat. Occasionally Tarzan left the ape tribe and ventured to his hut near the seashore. And now he's making his way there. It's late afternoon. The sun of a dying day is filtering through the dank foliage of the trees to make an intricate pattern of onyx and gold on the spongy mold on the ground beneath. The jungle is reverberant with sound. The chatter of monkeys, the singing of birds, the occasional growling and snarling of the larger animals as they make their imperial way to the waterhole. Tarzan is happy. Happy as a schoolboy on a holiday. Swinging along his tireless, arboreal way, he inhales the dank, pungent smell of the jungle with boyish delight. And the grim grandeur, the poisonous beauty of the jungle fills his soul with a feeling for which the ape language has no name. Meanwhile, off the West African coast, a small tramp steamer is plying her way through a placid sea. In the tiny salon of the ship are four people. Professor Porter, an old savant who exists in the present but lives in the archaeological past. His daughter, Jane, a beautiful girl whose charm is not only that of beauty but of wholesome loveliness and intelligence. Of these charms, the young man of the group is fully aware. He is William Cecil Clayton, a young Englishman, typical of the bond blue-eyed Oxford gentleman and eldest son of Lord Greystoke. The other man in the salon is the captain of the ship. What are you reading, Father? Uh, eh, uh, uh, yes, of course, my dear, of course. Uh, <laughs> I asked you what you were reading. Oh, oh uh, sorry. Uh, a book, Jane. Uh, one of those dusty ones that you persist in believing gives me my hay fever. It's called Africa Cristana. Uh, Mochili wrote it in 1816. Only 1816? That's rather current fiction for you, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, a man ought to keep up with modern literature, or, or he's liable to, to become an old foggy. Uh, I suppose anything published after the flood would be considered rather modern by archaeologists, wouldn't it, Professor Porter? Uh, oh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Uh, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on with your reading, Father. We won't disturb you anymore. We're almost there, aren't we, Captain Tracy? Uh, I beg your pardon? Well, honestly, I don't know which is the worst, you or father. It's enough to give a person a superiority complex. I'm the only one aboard that seems to find me most fascinating. But you're forgetting me, aren't you? Well, one could never forget anyone so gallant. Really, Captain, a person would think that you were burdened down with all the worries of the world. Uh... Not all of them, Miss Porter, but I'm afraid I have my share. Oh, really? Why? Mm, merely a matter of ship's discipline. Uh, nothing really important, I hope. Beg pardon, sir, but I'd like to see you stand... Yeah, what kind of discipline is this, Newton? Coming in without knocking. Take off your cap. Yes, sir. 
Sorry, my lady. Well, well, what is it? What is it? I'm afraid, sir. It... Don't ever let them know I told you, sir. They skin me alive. That's what they do, sir. They skin me alive. A blighter. What are you talking about? Mutiny, sir. Down below deck, sir. Uh. They're all in the forecastle, sir. Uh, mutiny? M- mutiny? Isn't there some law about that? Mutiny. I smelled it coming. That rotten crew we shipped at Sid. My compliments to Mr. Young. Tell him to report to me at once. Here. I'll batter those deck guys down in their hats and scuttle them like rats. Pardon, sir. But it's the first mate off that's leading the mutiny, sir. He's down in the glory old tomb now. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Is there anything I can do, sir? Yeah, don't worry, Clayton. I'll change this affair up in a minute. You keep Miss Moore and the professor from being frightened. I'm not at all frightened. Beg pardon, sir. I'd better get below before they miss me. They'd kill me if they knew I'd inform you, sir. All right, Newton. I'll remember this. Go below, then, and save your skin. Thank you, sir. Mr. Clayton, you find two automatics in the drawer of that desk. You'll take one and come with me? Certainly. Uh, what am I going to you? Good Lord. It's Newton. Come on, Clayton. Right on. Uh, what matter? Is the door stuck? Stuck nothing. We're far in. While the voyagers from the world outside are at the mercy of a mutinous crew, miles away... Tarzan is hanging from a tree branch, overlooking a clearing in the forest, and sees the beginning of a jungle tragedy. Sabor the lioness is dozing, surrounded by her happy family. One of her cubs wanders beneath the tree that hides Hista, the snake, the silent, strangling horror of the jungle. Hista, hungry and alert, drops part of her great and snarling length down from the branch and circles the cub, draws it up into the tree to slowly force it down into a constricting being by the undulating, torturous contraction of those great ring muscles. Sabor, the lioness, awakes to the danger with a snarl of mingled rage and anguish, hurls herself with a terrific leap to rescue her cub. She misses. Again and again, she keeps in a frantic effort to reach the snake. A roar shreds the chaotic monotone of the jungle into tatters. Sabor's special anguish moves Tarzan to pity. He falls forward, giving himself a tremendous impetus with his legs and catapults himself through the air. It's a tremendous leap, superhuman. He's leaping for the end of Sister's tail. If he makes it, he may not be able to cling to that slimy, lashing length and will fall to the infuriated beast below. He won't make it. He won't. He does. Slips. He slips. He holds. His weight nearly jerks Hister loose from the branch. Like lightning, Hister contracts to lash into the ground. But Tarzan lets go, drops to the branch beneath. Firstly, just in time, he falls past. He dangles for a brief moment, but just for a moment. A snarl warns him. He's hanging close enough to the ground for him to see both vicious leaps. He pulls himself up to the branch. The tip of one of Sabor's claws cuts a tiny gash in his heel. He stands on the branch, gathers himself for a leap. Oh! Pista sting with body, slaps the club around his waist, tightens. Then slowly commences to throw him up to the branch above, where it can hold him fast against the branch and exert terrific pressure which will crush him. Tarzan struggles terrifically, but slowly, slowly feels himself being drawn. Tarzan's mind races. With a great effort, he unwinds the grass rope around his waist, snatches the long string knife from its sheath, and plunges in it on the narrow part of the reptile's tail. The snake lies, but doesn't lose its hold. Hastily, Tarzan works the blade through the resisting muscles until the handle protrudes at one end and the blade at the other. The serpent's agony has caused it to lose the distance gained in drawing Tarzan to the branch on which it lies. Tarzan is on the level with the branch from which he's drawn. Hurriedly, he ties the rope above the knife, letting it slide down the snake's body until the knife keeps it from slipping. Then, working like a madman, he snubs the rope around the branch. Hister strains. The branch creaks ominously, but doesn't break. The pain of pulling against the knife in his body makes Hister slowly release its hold on Tarzan. 
Unable to let go of the bench above and secure to the one below, the great serpent is all but powerless. Its body is stretched up almost straight. Its dreadful leverage is gone. Tarzan climbs up the trunk of the tree, gains the upper branch. The cub is still struggling feebly. Tarzan still clings to the tree, extends his legs out, locks them around the branch and hits his neck in what is known in wrestling as a scissors. He applies the pressure of those powerful legs. Harder, harder, harder. Pulling the lion cup from the mouth of the reptile with one free hand. Vista's great mouth opens wider and wider, no longer eager to keep up prey, only anxious to escape the pressure of those powerful legs. The cup is free. Tarzan swings down, drops the cup gently on the ground and up again on the branch before Sabor can furl herself upon him. Sabor, seeing her cup restored, pounces upon it, licking it, turning it over gently, worried. The cup recovers its breath and whimpers. Convinced that her offspring is safe, Sabor turns her attention to the thing up in the tree. Tarzan sits panting. Strange that after his good deed, Sabor should be anxious to tear her benefactor into ribbons. Jungle gratitude. However, undismayed, Tarzan looks down into the baleful eyes and snarling face of Sabor. There's an ominous creak, a splintering. The limb under Tarzan is given way. He's falling, falling into the merciless fangs and terrible claws of Sabor. He grasps the small branch. It breaks. Tarzan plunges downward, downward, falling to the ground. He strikes the ground. On his head and shoulder, he lies still unconscious. You're tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater, presented by Phoenix Media. of Edgar Rice Burroughs' famous book. Tarzan lies unconscious on the ground. Sabor sees a lithe, hairless body in eight and motionless before her. Crouching, snarling, her lean haunches gather beneath her, her back arches with a spring, her jaws gaping to reveal her yellow fangs. Merciless hatred for the thing which lies so helpless in front of her gleams from her baleful, yellowish eyes. Boys, tense, crouched for the leap, the lioness waits for some movement, some motion which will send her hurling upon her victim. There is a moment of silence, a tense moment, a moment in which furious death waits to execute its grim mission, poised, waiting. Slowly, Sabor's animal brain connects the presence of her cub with Tarzan. Hister was devouring the cub. Tarzan fought Hister. The cub is safe. Slowly, suspiciously, the great beast relaxes. The hair on her short mane gradually lies down, and her tensed haunches straighten. Slowly, very slowly, she advances toward Tarzan's limp body. Snarling deep in her throat, she stops, showing this strange creature lying so still before her, the deference of fear. Cautious, 
Ever ready to crush the life out of the thing with a mighty paw, should it move, she advances closer and closer, step by step. Her sharp, pungent breath is hot on Tarzan's neck. Tabor sniffs. The thing has a strange scent. Not the scent of an ape. Tabor is puzzled. Tarzan stirs. Moans a little in his unconsciousness. Tabor leaps back, snarling, her powerful paw raised to crush the head of that strange creature. Slowly, she puts her foot back on the ground, circles Tarzan, and without further ado, Trots away, urging her cubs before her. Sabor, the merciless killer, the feared, the dreaded, Sabor, the beast, has learned gratitude. Tarzan lies unconscious. The fall would have been sufficient to kill an ordinary man, but Tarzan breathes. The jungle sun sinks lower and lower. Suddenly there is no day. A dank, steaming mist arises from the ground and drifts in great clouds through the forest, like ghosts of massive monsters returned from some primitive jungle of eons before. Tarzan still does not move. He lies easy prey to the savage beasts of the jungle, the deadly insects, the sleeping leopard, the murderous gorillas, and worst of all, the snake, Pista, the silent, cold, crushing, slithering death. The moon comes up, making the jungle a wilderness of tall shadows, growing in a myriad of puddles of moonlight. The jungle becomes replete with sound, the whimpering cry of the lemurs, the weird laughter of the hyenas at the water hole, the roar of Numa, the lion, walking in imperial disdain, heralding his approach to the water hole. A cold, dead weight is slowly coiling itself around Tarzan's body. Its heavy, gliding pressure stirs him, with a growl of anger, Tarzan regains consciousness. The small steamer, bearing our passengers and the mutinous crew, steams down the golden path laid by the moon off the sea on the West African coast. The same moon which shines down upon the inner Tarzan, his cousin Clayton could see if he chose to look through a porthole of the ship's salon. How closely related, and yet how far removed these two. Tarzan, the ape man, and William Cecil Clayton. The four in the salon, Jane and Professor Porter, Clayton and the captain, discovered that they locked in. The crew is mutinied. Newton, the seaman, has informed the captain. Newton leaves. A scream is heard. It's hideous. Grabbing the two automatics, the captain and Clayton rush to the door. It's locked. We're pawned in. <laughs> Oh, what are they doing to that poor man? There, there, dear. Everything will be all right. I'm afraid it won't be all right. This is mutiny. <laughs> we can't stand here and let them torch that man this way. Open the door. Open it. You hear that? I won't stop it. I can't stand here and listen to that. I'm going to try and shoot the latch off the door. We'll do nothing of the sort. I'm captain here, and as long as I am captain, I'll be obeyed. Understand that. We've a devilish grave situation. This is mutiny. If I can get them to open that door of their own will, we have a chance. If I can't, we're better off in here. I suggest, Mr. Clayton, that you leave the matter entirely in the captain's hands. Oh, sorry, Captain. Not at all. Miss Porter. Yes, Captain. You will find in the top drawer of my desk a small jade green bottle. Its contents are deadly. I hope it proves to be a souvenir of an unsuccessful mutiny. You don't think, Captain, that it will be necessary? This is the scum of Port Set. And Port Set, my dear Clayton... Well, you've seen it. I found the bottle, Captain. 
thank you. Isn't there some way that we can placate these mutineers, Captain? If it's money, why, I have a little... And I have a great deal. See if you can buy them off. If they take the ship, everything on it is theirs anyway. Yaunt, my first mate, is in back of this. And Yaunt is no fool. He's rather an intelligent fellow, in fact. Uh, I've had several conversations with him. Seems rather interested in archaeology. You stand away from the door, Miss Porter. Thank you. Mr. Yaunt! Mr. Yaunt, do you hear me? Yaunt! Yeah, I heard you, Captain. Come here and unlock this door. And get shot out. No, thank you, Captain. Throw those two automatics. They're in your desk the first. Are you presuming to order me, Mr. Yaunt? You'll lose your papers for this. <laughs> My papers? You're on the high seas now, Skipper. Not at the Admiralty. My papers? They've been changed, Tracy. They're Captain's papers now. You are mad. This is mutiny. You realize what that means? Yes, and you'd better realize, too. Throw up those automatics on the deck. I'm not asking you... I'm telling you. And I'm telling you, Mr. Yaunt, that I'll see this ship run aground in Hades before I'll take orders from you. Yeah. Well, we'll quit the bloody arms off your nosy man, Newton, here, and throw him over the side. If those guns aren't thrown up on the deck in exactly one minute. No, Master. No, Master. Please, just go, Master. Captain, throw them out, please. Please, please throw them out. Oh, oh, there goes mine. All right. Or the other one. Well, I... I guess... I guess they've got us there. Did you take the clip out of that automatic before you chucked it out, Clayton? No. No, I didn't. Uh, not very clever of you. There it goes. Uh. You're learning to take orders readily, Captain. Come in here. Oh, I just happened to think. Quick, Father. Give me that map. Why, uh, yes. Uh, where did I... Uh, why, here it is. Angle. You engage what this door. Is either the ex-captain or any of these passengers starting here? Yeah, I stop it. Stop it. Well, Tracy, it seems... You dirty cat, you. Shut up, Clayton. I won't shut up. What? Ah! Ah! You, you killed Clayton. Stand back there, all of you. Or I'll start blasting. That's just to show you how the ship is going to be run from now on. Only next time... I'll use the business end and not the butt of the gun. I wouldn't be surprised if you killed him, Yonk. It doesn't make a great deal of difference, Tracy. Not to you, it doesn't. They hang them just as high for mutiny as they do for murder. Not when there aren't any witnesses. You don't mean... That there won't be any witnesses? Yes. Arzan regains consciousness. A sinewy thing of all muscle is wrapping itself around him. Slowly encircling him. He voices the ferocious cry of a battling beast. The contracting length wound around him tightens. Tarzan struggles. Then suddenly he feels himself lifted high in the air. Another moment. And he finds himself safe on the broad back of Tantor the elephant. Tantor his friend. Despite his aching head, Tarzan gives a ball of triumph. Tantor, the great beast of the jungle, whom even Sabor fears, hears the call of his friend. The wise beast knows that all is well with the white ape upon his back. Tantor is happy too, 
thought Tarzan is dearer to Tantor than all else in the world. A strange jungle friendship, as strong as it is hard. Tantor throws back his great trunk and trumpets to tell the fastest of the whole forest and its denizens that the mighty Tantor and his friend Tarzan are passing on their way. Let all beware. Tarzan feels himself all over gingerly and then shrugs. Nearness to death is light, not adventure in the jungle. Guiding Tantor by kicking him behind the ear, Tarzan directs the great beast to the seashore and his cabin. Tantor sways along his way at a speed which is almost unbelievable for so clumsy an appearance, tearing up the trees and brush which impede his way. Then Tarzan hears the beating of the surf, and in a few minutes they come out of the jungle onto the beach. A strip of white sand, a sea of darkness divided by golden bands. Tarzan looks down the path of the moon on the water. He gasps, a boat! That means men! Tarzan the ape thrills because he sees in them that which he most wants to be, man. Tarzan the man. Get this and previous episodes of Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater wherever you get podcasts or by visiting phoenixmedia.us forward slash silverageheroes. Join us again, same bat time, same bat station, for another presentation of Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater. Excelsior! Thank you for tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater. I'm your host, Christian Phoenix. Now, growing up as a comic book fan of the 80s and 90s, I've always been fascinated with how storytellers translated these iconic heroes from the page to film, television, and radio. Long before we got the big-budget CGI epics we enjoy today, children gathered around their radios to hear their favorite do-gooders come to life with little more than their imaginations and these broadcasts from a time long forgotten. I invite you to gather around your radio for this presentation of Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater. the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal book, we recall the strange history of Tarzan. Tarzan the mighty hunter. Tarzan the white god of a dark continent. Tarzan of the apes. You're mad, John. You're mad. There's only one way for you to save your skin now, and that is for you to let me resume command. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court when we return. 
If you assume command of this boat, it's your death warrant. I'm the first mate. I take command when anything happens to the captain. Isn't that right? When anything happens to the captain? Yes, it will. Well, get down to it, John. Get down to it. What do you want? What do you think, Professor Porter? I really wouldn't know, Mr. Young. I have never made a study of shipwrecks. No, but you've made a study of old maps. Where is it? Unfortunately, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Show that. Where is it? If you will tell me what you are looking for, then perhaps I might not prove so obtuse. Listen, you old fool. I'm talking about that chart. The one on which the treasure is indicated. Bring it out. Where is it? Mr. Young, do you mind if I open this port and let in some air? Bango, open that port for the lady. Oh, yeah. Oh, never mind. I'll do it. Bango, get that lover off of the floor and stow him on the bunk. Oh, yeah. Mr. Clayton seems to be taking quite a nap. He isn't dead. No, he's all right. Well, Yonch, what's your procedure? Porter, where's that chart? Uh, really, I... Uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't the slightest conception what you're talking about. Bad memory, eh? Well, there's a cure for that. An old Chinese cure. Gates, Bango, get the professor below. We'll try the water cure. For his memory. Aye, aye, sir. Come on here, Governor. Uh, 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 come on now, Fisher. Uh, uh, now, come on here. Me. Come here, Yon. You wouldn't resort to torture. No. Listen, Tracy. I'm not committing mutiny to be stopped by that old goat. Yes, I'll torture him. And if he doesn't come through then, there's the woman there. I want that shot. And I'm going to have it. You're just a little too late, Mr. Young. Late? I threw the chart out the porch when I opened it just now. Jane, you, you, you didn't. Why, why, that chart might have opened up a new vista of history. I'm sorry, Father, but... Oh, you threw it out of the porch, did you? Well, young lady, I think you're lying. And for your sake, you'd better be. I'm going to search your stateroom. And if I don't find it... Gates... You and Pango keep watch here. I would suggest, John, that you drop anchor. You're coming in pretty close. The postal curve is very gradual on the African West Coast. I'll run the boat, Tracy. I see you will. A ground. And another thing. If I don't find that chart in your stateroom, I'm going to give you exactly a half an hour to produce it, Porter. And then... Your daughter will wish you had. You swine! We're in a quandary, I'd say. What would you suggest doing, Captain? John isn't bluffing. Best thing is to give him the chart he's talking about. Because if we don't, John will make good his threats. Uh, where is the chart, my dear? Uh, uh, be careful that these men don't overhear. I told the truth, Father. I did throw it overboard. You mean the chart is gone? Why, yes. Will it make any difference? Any difference? All the difference in the world. You'll never get John to believe that you threw it out that port. You'll think you're trying to keep it from him. You'll try to make your tell by every way his devilish mind can think of. Oh, Jane, you, you shouldn't have done that. There's no way to get it back now. There might be. How? How? You know that small jade green bottle that contained poison, Captain? The one you told me to take out of your drawer? Yes. Well, I poured the contents of that out. 
I rolled the chart up and put it in the bottle before I threw it out the port. It might have washed ashore. It has a good chance of it. The current in the coal swings up against the beach. Good, good. The loss of that chart would seriously affect the opportunity of finding vast treasure. Loss of that chart means more than that, Professor Porter. It will mean the loss of all our lives. We've got to find that chart. We have to find it, that's all. And if we don't... It will be unfortunate that Miss Porter emptied the contents of that bottle. Meanwhile, beyond the mutinous first mate has searched every inch of the passenger's cabin, ripping open mattresses, scattering the contents of their luggage, but to no avail. He cannot find the chart. Beyond has risked much to get the chart. He leaves the wreckage of the last cabin. He will have that chart. He'll resort to the terrible torture used many years ago on the China Seas, the water shore, where the victim has water forced down his throat until his eyes protrude and his stomach distends, until the intense pressure inside his body bursts his heart. Anything to get that chart. Gaining the deck, Yant notices that the boat is well into the harbor. He orders the anchors dropped and the engines cut. Then, with a fiendish, dreadful glint of purpose making his eyes inhumanly cruel, he makes for the salon. He rips open the door. Hangle, go below. Bring four men topside with buckets and lots of water. See here, Yant. You're making a mistake. That chart did go out the port. I don't believe it. They're all lying. But when I get through with you, you'll be begging to tell the truth. Begging. Don't be a fool, Yant. We know what you're planning to do. Listen. Miss Porter threw that chart out the port. Before she did, she put it in a jade green bottle. Current in this cove will wash that bottle up on the beach. Let me and one of your men go ashore and look for it. To find it's our only chance of saving our skins. Yant, convinced that Captain Tracy is telling the truth, finally agrees that the captain shall go ashore with two of his men to look for the bottle on the beach. But before Captain Tracy leaves, Yant takes the two men who are to accompany him outside the cabin and talks to them. Gates, you and Fangle go ashore with Tracy. He's looking for a jade green bottle that's washed ashore. Aye, aye, sir. And when you come back, come back alone. Understand? I understand, sir. We'll stick that blighter. Fangles, I hate you in the car with these initials in somebody's back. All right. Get those davits out and put that boat over the side. Crouching high up in a tree hidden from view, Tarzan watches as a small boat bearing three men pulls to shore. The ape man for the first time is seeing beings of his own kind. His first impulse is to drop down the tree, run down to the beach to greet them. But the shyness of a wild thing keeps him motionless, staring from his retreat. Tango, the giant Chinese, whose eyes are dead and unblinking as a serpent's, and the sly cockney gates are rowing the heavy boat. In the bow sits Captain Tracy, his weather-beaten face a mask. Tarzan watches the men beach the boat and start walking slowly down the shore looking for something. Tarzan follows them, swinging slowly, silently from branch to branch in the wooded fringe which separates the jungle from the shore. Studying the first of his fellow men that he has ever seen, Tarzan takes a liking to the captain. The other two he despises. They slink behind the tall men as two cowardly hyenas following a sick lion. 
Tarzan's mind is in a chaos of curiosity. But what are they looking? Then he sees the tall man reach down with a cry and pick up something green from the beach. The two others snatch it from his hand. Tarzan freezes. There will be a fight. Two against one. Tarzan will go to the aid of the tall man. But to his surprise, the tall man merely shrugs and turns about to return to the boat. Is he afraid, Tarzan wonders? They retrace their steps. The tall man is still ahead, followed by the copper man and the weazened one. Tarzan follows them. His keen eyes see the weazened man nod to the copper man, whose eyes are like hista, snakes. The copper man slowly draws a long knife from his waist. He stoops, then rushes up behind the tall man. Tarzan yells to warn him. Tracy turns at the fearful cry. The Chinaman's knife is descending on him. Tracy's fist shoots out. It lands on the Oriental's jaw. The knife is then catching his arm. But the blow has sent Fango back so that the cruel blade is not plunged into his body. For a second, all three stand motionless. Then, Gates dives at Tracy's legs. Tracy brings up his foot, catches Gates full in the mouth. Gates groans, but catches the captain's legs. He goes down. Fangle jumps on the captain, patting both knees in his chest. Raises his knife, trying to plunge it into Tracy's heart. Tarzan drops from the tree, dashes down the beach toward the fighting men. The knife flashes downward. Behold my process. Ooh, yeah, let me tell you something right here, uh huh. It's the Loot Crate subscription box, yeah, full of exclusive loot on surprises delivered to your door every month. Just pick up your favorite geeky genre, daddy. <laughs> From the original Loot Crate, the Loot Crate DX collectible boxes, dude. Cowabunga! To the Loot Gaming video game box. Woohoo! Yeehoo! Wowzers! With crates starting as large as $11.99 per month, those are backs just about for all collectors. To get your geek on, head over to phoenixmedia.us forward slash loot crate and claim your exclusive offer. That's F-E-N-I-X media.us forward slash loot crate. Great Scott! Snap into a loot crate, it? You're tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater, presented by Phoenix Media. bring you another episode of Edgar Rice Burroughs' amazing story, Tarzan of the Apes. Tarzan drops from a tree, dashes down the beach toward the fighting men. The knife flashes downward. Tracy closes his eyes. It's the end. Tarzan's flying feet sends silent sprays of sand shooting out behind him. Tangle's arm, which is driving the knife downward into Tracy, is grasped by Tarzan, pulled back with a terrific jerk which almost pulls his arm out of its socket. The Chinaman is hurled from Tracy's body and sent sprawling backwards. Deeds draws a knife and leaps upon Tarzan's unprotected back, but his shadow on the sand warns Tarzan. He whirls, catches the cock in his upraised hand in his, 
And with his free hand, he grasped the cotton's throat. Tarzan's vice-like fingers closed the tape, the man's windpipe. The cotton's eyes bulge. His face turns a ghastly blue. He sinks to his knees, limp. Tarzan releases his death grip, and Gates pitches forward in the sand, unconscious, all but dead. For a second, Tarzan looks at his fellow men. His lip curls contemptuously. He turns to the others. Fangle snatches the green jade bottle and runs for the jungle. Tracy's after him. Tracy knows that to return the battle to Yacht is the only way to save Jane Clayton and Professor Porter. The giant Chinaman is swifter by far than Tracy, who doggedly runs after him. The two men disappear in the rank undergrowth of the jungle. Tarzan, puzzled, watches, and then follows them, leaving the inert gates lying on the sand. Gaining the jungle, Tarzan leaps into a tree, swings off after the pair. His mind is in a quandary. The copper man and the wizened one are not trying to kill the tall man because they want to eat him. It's because of the green thing he had seen them pick up on the beach. They belong to the same tribe. They came from the same boat. Yet two of them had tried to kill the other. It's all very strange, Tarzan thinks, as he speeds through the trees following the trail of the two men. He pauses for a second, standing poised on a branch, and looks down in the thick underbrush below, studying it for a moment. Evidently, the copper man, with eyes like Hister's, had outdistanced the man whose face he liked. The tall man had gone off in one direction in pursuit. It would be better to follow the copper man, the man he did not like, for he had the green thing which he had taken away from the tall man. Tarzan leaps to another branch and is on his way with terrific silent speed of an arboreal ape on the hunt. He comes upon the Chinaman pushing his way through the jungle. He is no longer running, but walking, seemingly a little uncertain of his course. The man is lost. With a suddenness which makes the Chinaman step backward with a cry, Tarzan drops down in front of him. An expression of terror crosses the Oriental's face. But he is no coward. He stands his ground, waiting. The Chinaman is nearly as tall as Tarzan. He's a brute of a man, heavy-muscled, agile. The copper man appraises the bronze giant who stands observing him so curiously. Slowly, hardly perceptibly, the Chinaman's hand creeps to the knife at his belt. Tarzan sees the movement, but is indifferent to it. By the time it'll take the copper man to draw the knife and come close enough to bring it into play, he'll be ready for him. Suddenly, Fango whips the knife from his belt, pulls it back over his head, hurls it with the full force of his tremendous arm. The knife tries startling in his shoulder. With a triumphant cry, Fango rushes the ape-man. Meanwhile, aboard the tramp steamer in the harbor, we find that Jane Porter and her father, and William Clayton, locked in the salon, waiting for Tracy to return the jade green bottle, which will save their lives. This waiting is driving me mad. I'll play you a game of Russian bank until Captain Tracy comes back, Mr. Clayton. You know, I've a hunch that Tracy isn't coming back. Uh, nonsense, Clayton. Of course he's coming back. He'll have no alternative. That pirate young sent two of his men ashore with him. At the same time, I... I wish I, I knew what had happened to Philander. It wouldn't surprise me if he sent those men not to make sure that he would come back, but to make sure he wouldn't. I saw Yonk take the Chinaman aside and tell him something. By the nasty look in the beggar's face, I'd say that it didn't look any too well for the captain. As to Philander, he can't be any worse off than we are. Uh, you're right. Our own position is none too safe. In fact, it might almost be classed as hazardous. Oh, I hardly think Yonk would dare do away with us. If Captain Tracy finds the chart, 
We'll probably lose the treasure, if there is a treasure, and then be set ashore in some strange port to make our way back as best we can. Yont would dare anything. With any of us alive, he's in constant danger. However, if he can do away with us, disband the crew and scuttle the ship, he'd be comparatively safe. Naturally, the ship would be reported missing. And after a while, it would be thought one of the tragedies of the sea, where a ship goes down with all hands lost and is never heard of again. Then you have the most charming imagination, Mr. Clayton. Oh, I don't wish to be alarming. But we might as well face this thing. We're in a beastly hole. On the other hand, Clayton, uh, there's no use congesting our livers by getting into a frenzy about it. No, 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 no. There's nothing we can do but wait. So let's wait with the minimum of effort. If there were only some way we could barricade ourselves and at least hold them off for a bit. By Jove. What? As long as the ship is at anchor, no one is likely to go near the steering wheel. And it's on the deck below this, a filthy hole. It has a watertight compartment door. It's the last place they would look for us in, and even if they did find us, they'd have the dickens' own time getting into us. Well, the only trouble with your idea, Mr. Clayton, seems to lie in getting there. And that I don't think is so very difficult. I've been watching our guard. He's a big Negro, a mute. And being a mute, he can't raise an outcry. Uh, but this door is locked. We can't wonder. A good jar would burst it open. We'll both throw our weight against it. Once outside, you and Jane make for the steering gear. I'll take care of the Negro. All right. Let's try it, right? Both together. Now. Run now. I'll get the guard. The sound of the door being burst open carries faintly to the captain's cabin, where Yant is sitting with his right-hand man, Snipes. What was that? I didn't hear nothing, Chief. I thought I heard something. Anyway, I'm going to take every man ashore. And I'm going to find Tracy in that double-crossing cheek and lining if I have to crawl across Africa on my hands and knees. <laughs> Maybe they're still looking for the green bottle on the beach. Don't be a fool. They found the bottle and the three of them have gone after the treasure. Tracy's got a smooth tongue. He talked them into running out on me. But I'll find them. And when I do... It'll be very artistic, Snipes. All hands on deck, and ship them all over the side. Shall I leave the dumb nigger to stand watch over the passengers? No. Ain't they liable to get away? No. You... You ain't going to... Yes. we got to get rid of them sometime. Give me that automatic. And get these men in the boats, while I cancel our passengers' round-trip tickets. Right out. I'll send one of the boats back after you as soon as... This way, Porter. What was that? Hey, look out the port here. What? The guys have busted down the town. Well, let me see. A fighting guard you put over them. Now, I put them deep. They're going below. Let's see what their game is. Right, Come on. Now we return to Tarzan. He tries to lift his arm. There's a shooting pain in his shoulder. If he moves his arm, he'll cut a muscle. The arm is useless until he removes the knife. Fango is upon him, confident that his strength will equal that of Tarzan now that one arm is crippled. Fango snatches up a dead branch, swinging the club around his head, bears down upon Tarzan. Tarzan stands motionless, waiting. Fango wheels the club high, brings it down with tremendous force. With a speed greater than any boxer, Tarzan sidesteps. The club barely misses him. Tarzan's good arm shoots out, catches the Chinaman around the waist, and with a mighty jerk sends Fango spinning, the club flying from his hand. Before it falls, Tarzan is upon him. Running low like a football player, Tarzan strikes Fango with his foot just above the knees. Chinaman falls over Tarzan's back. At the same time, Tarzan stands up, grabbing the Chinaman's foot. Fango hangs over Tarzan's shoulder like a sack of meal, holding the Chinaman's ankle in an iron grasp. 
Tarzan starts to revolve faster, faster. Dangle swings out wide in an arc. Tarzan, with superhuman strength, swings to his ankle as he turns faster, faster. Tarzan is swinging Tangle around with him. And as an athlete, a hammer. Leaning back farther and farther, turning faster and faster. Suddenly, Tarzan lets go. Tangle flies through the air with a splash. Tangle fumbles at the base of the tree, stunned. He struggles to his feet, wavers. There's fear in his eyes. Fear for this man whose strength is that of the great apes. Tarzan is upon him before he can run. Tango picks up a huge rock, places it high over his head with both hands and hurls it at Tarzan. The rock flies directly at Tarzan's head. Tarzan ducks. It misses him by a fraction of an inch. On Tarzan comes. Tango turns to run. It's too late. The ape man's charging body strikes him, drives him against a small tree. Tarzan's good arm is about to hang him in the tree. The tree is on slowly as he crushes the murderous writhing Tango against the tree. The great muscles in Tarzan's neck, shoulder, and arm knock and swell as he exerts his terrific strength. Tarzan releases his hold. The Chinaman slumps to the ground. Tarzan gives no further attention to the dead man. Slowly, carefully, he removes the knife sticking from his shoulder. The pain makes his jaw muscles bulge. The knife comes out easily, and to his surprise... He can now move his arm. The wound is minor, but painful. Tarzan selects leaves from a nearby shrub, and with them treats the open wound. He turns his attention to the dead Chinaman, searches him until he finds the green bottle, and starts with never a backward glance at his victim to seek the tall man to whom the bottle belongs. Swinging with easy grace and miraculous speed, Tarzan comes upon Captain Tracy, hopelessly lost in the maze of undergrowth. A slight movement in the tall grass behind Tracy catches Tarzan's eye. A tawny shadow. Numa the lion crossed for a spring. You're tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater presented by Phoenix Media. startling book, Tarzan of the Apes. Swinging with easy grace and miraculous speed, Tarzan soon comes upon Captain Tracy, hopelessly lost in the maze of undergrowth. Silently, unseen, Tarzan looks down upon the man and pities his inadequacy. A slight movement in the tall grass behind Tracy catches Tarzan's eye. A tawny shadow, Numa the lion, crouched for a spring, his sinewy legs drawn deep under him. His lean body low, yellow fangs bared, lips twisted in a fearful, soundless snarl. His body sinks lower, crouching for that terrific, deadly spring. Lower, lower, inch by inch, lower, 
In a moment, there'll be a roaring snarl, a mangled body. Lower, lower. With swift, steady fingers, Tarzan snatches an arrow from his quiver, fits it into the bowstring. With bow pulled taut, Tarzan waits. The lion's eyes glow, his body is tense, ready. Slowly, the merciless, yellowish-green eyes close as the huge, dripping mouth opens. Human snarls. Crazy whirls. Going to the base of darling death. Crazy screams. There's a moment of deadly tension. Numa springs. The light muscular body launches itself. An arrow flies from Tarzan's bow. Plunges deep into Numa's side. For a moment, the charge is stopped. But only for a moment. Numa turns. Stops with the arrow buried in his lean side. Crazy starts to run. Stumbles. Falls. Numa, in a maggot of pain and rain, whirls around. Tenses for one more terrific spring upon the poor man. Crazy crawls, rolls, sticks his fingers deep into the earth. The dragon puts the safety. It's no use. Numa springs. Like a plummet, Tarzan drops from a tree, lands upon the hurling beast in midair, his fingers clutching the infuriated beast's shaggy mane. They twist in the air, fall. Tarzan's mighty right arm encircles the beast's neck. The giant falls strike out. Tarzan clings to the brutish neck. Slowly, with sinew-tearing strength, he pulls the great head backward. Twisting, snarling, clawing, backward, backward. Suddenly, Tarzan's knife flashes, plunges with terrific force into the side of the lion again and again and again. Slowly, the great muscles of the lion relax. The yellowish-green fire fades from his eyes. The great head goes loose in Tarzan's grasp. Numa is dead. Dropping the dead lion, Tarzan throws back his head, beats his chest as he sends echoing through the jungle his cry of triumph. The cry of the victor. Tarzan, the mighty hunter, has made a kill. Thanks. Thanks, old man. You, you saved my life. It was... Well, all but unbelievable. My name is Tracy. Numa Bundolo Tarman Gani. Tarzan Bundolo Numa. Numa Bun. I, I, I don't understand. Numa Bundolo Tarman Gani. I'm sorry, old man, but English is the only language I know. Tarzan studies Tracy curiously. Slowly he walks around him. Finally, Tracy starts off, motioning Tarzan to follow him. Tarzan realizes that the man is going in the direction away from which he came. He grasps Tracy's arm to lead him in the opposite direction. Certain that he's right, Tracy starts off again in the wrong direction. This time, Tarzan takes from his leopard skin girdle the green jade bottle and thrusts it into Tracy's hand. Tracy is amazed. A bottle. And then... A green bottle. He's aghast. With a swift gesture, Tarzan grabs Tracy, hoists him to his shoulder... Tracy struggles futilely and then relaxes. Certainly this forest man who saved his life at the risk of his own has no intent other than for good. Tracy is appalled. Tarzan leaps, grasps the raw branch of a tree. Up, up he leaps from branch to branch. In a moment they're sweeping along with incredible speed. Meanwhile, Clayton, Jane, and Professor Porter are stealthily making their way aft where they intend to hide themselves from yacht, believing they'll be safe. Unknown to them, yawns and snakes are following. I... I thought I heard somebody following us. I, I too heard something. Come on. Hurry along. Just through this next boat. Here we are. Or I'll shoot. Run for it. Take Jane's other arm, Professor. Come on. Sit down. Come on. 
fine marksmanship. Fine marksmanship, Snipes. And forty-five length easy to handle. Ah, you couldn't hit him with a machine gun. And what are we going to do? We ain't got a chance of getting through that door. Nor of them getting out. There's a latch on both sides. Fasten the bolt. Hey, Steve, what's the lie? Am I supposed to sit on my ditty bag doing nothing but waiting for them to get ready to come out? They aren't coming out. Oh, yeah, that's pretty raw, ain't it? Letting the dime starve to death? They aren't going to starve to death. Open that seacock. They'll drown like red. Why, oh, I, I ain't soft or nothing, but... Well, can't we just maroon them someplace, you know, sort of give them a run for the alley? Don't be a fool, Stripes. With them alive, our name will be carved on every gallows in the country. If we get them out of the way, get the treasure, spill the old tub, we're away clean. Sure. That's all right for the guy in the old geezer. But what about the dime? When I want any suggestions from you, Snipes, I'll ask for them. Crack that valve and come on. I want to get ashore and hunt down Tracy. I stuck my head in the noose for a treasure, and I'm not going to be cheated out of it. Nobody ever cheated you out of nothing yet, John. But if you decide turn it, I'll turn it. Turn it. She's on full. Yeah. As far as she'll go. That, that ends trail, I worried. Come along. Have you a match, Professor? There ought to be a lamp in here somewhere. Ah! Something just ran over my foot. A, a rodent of some sort, no doubt. Hurry, Mr. Clayton. Put on the light. Ah, ah here are some matches. Always the last pocket in which one looks. There's a lamp over there. Oh, what luck. Oh, this is great luck. Lamp's full. Oh, the place is alive with rats. Ah, uh, uh, rather an ancient and fish-like smell, if I may prove Shakespeare. Imagine that beast jump piling on a wall. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, I've been thinking it over, Clayton. The best thing for us to do is to go out, face them, and offer to do anything, anything in return for their word to give Jane safe passage to the next port. Their word? What good will that do? Oh, those terrible, nasty little eyes. Uh, by George, look, look, look. They're scurrying. Half of them are gone already. Thank heaven. What in the world are you supposed to start them off that way? Uh, when rats desert, it's an ill omen, they say. Uh, oh, look. Wait, this compartment is being flooded. Oh, let's get out of this. They're going to flood us out. Open the door, please. Oh, no, I'm standing in water now. Well, you might as well go out and face it. When I open the door, stand back. Oh, but please, take off of it. All right, stand back, Professor. Oh, the door must be stuck. Put your shoulder to it. All right, now. One, two, three. <coughs> that door isn't stuck, Clayton. It's bolted on the other side. You... You mean we're locked in? Oh, now, don't worry. We'll pound on the door and they'll open up. Uh, hand me that car over there. Oh, Jane. Yes, yes. And let me help you up on the pipe there so you can keep your feet dry. Oh, don't bother. I'm well up to my knees now. Hurry, lock on the door. Uh, here, Peggy. Here's the door. Right. 
And hear this. Oh, surely, surely that was the door. Well, of course, of course. I need to do that. Jump. Jump. Open the door. Jump, you hear? Open the door. You can't let him frown like this. Jump! Jump! You're tuning in to Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater, presented by Phoenix Media. the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal book. Jump! Jump! You can't leave us here! It's murder! No! Uh, why not? Why, it's monstrous! It ain't outrageous! It's... Ah! Uh, I can't leave you there, eh? You're trying to tell me that you and Lady spoke the truth. What you said that you threw the file overboard. It is the truth! I swear it! Yeah, and if that's the truth, what are all going to set you free for? <laughs> By the time Gates gets back with the plans, well, there won't be any way he comes left. If ever I get out of here, young, I'll, Yes, but don't forget, Professor. 
If we get blown up, so do Yacht and his crew. I can't find much consolation in that. Not consolation, Professor. The trick. Make enough noise here and Yonfu will come to see what's up. If he refuses to let us out, calls our bluff, in other words, he'll blow the ship up. Oh, you'll have to hurry. I can't hold on much longer. The water You hold. can't get into that locker now, Clayton. Why, man, it's, it's madness. Can't I, though? Watch. <laughs> no, now, <coughs> see if I got the right wrench. <coughs> this is it. I, I can't move it. You hold the wrench, Jane. I'll go back for the hammer. Really, I'm afraid I, I can't hold on. Just one more minute, there's the girl. Either we win or... or I, I, I'll help you, Clayton. I can hang on to that pipe. You, you can't. You couldn't keep your head high enough. It'll be over our heads in a minute. Ready? Now hold the wrench while I hit it. Making it, Clayton? Yes, sir. There are three of them out. Both, I mean. How many more? Just two more. And... Hey! What's this all in here? What do you do with all? Get your... Tell him if he doesn't open this door, we'll blow the ship up. Tarzan stops in his race through the treetops. Tracy draws a deep breath. Since the moment Tarzan had thrown him across his shoulders, the journey has been one long nightmare. Every moment he's expected to be his last, any second to find himself hurtling through space, down, down to the ground, a hundred feet below. Tarzan lowers Tracy from his shoulders, holds him until the captain's feet find a resting place. But Tracy needs no warning to hang on. Stretching himself, Tarzan grins, opens his mouth, and rubs an expressive hand across his stomach. Tracy laughed. <laughs> yes, old man, I am hungry. And language or no language, that's one sign I understand. Tarzan nods. He grips Tracy about the waist. With the speed of a falling stone, like some burnished bronze missile, he drops from limb to limb. The speed almost sickens Tracy. He closes his eyes, only to open them again when he feels Tarzan shaking him. Finds himself on solid ground. With a word and a sign, which Tracy takes to mean, stay here, Tarzan speeds into the undergrowth. He searches with keen eyes the moss-covered ground. His nostrils quiver. A sigh of satisfaction escapes him. The fine hairs on the nape of his neck stand up. He has seen the spool of Horta, the boar. Tarzan crouches, moves forward stealthily, his sun-bronzed body melting into the jungle growth. His feet fall on the tangled twigs and leaves with never a sound. There's a crackling of bush ahead. He brushes aside a giant fern leaf, looks into the clearing. There is his meal, Horta the boar. And Horta has seen the ape man. With a snarl, the beast lowers his head. Its piggish eyes glint evilly. The curled, foaming lips draw back viciously from the pointed tusks. Its cloven hoofs paw the ground. The tough eye tightens as he chances for the charge. Tarzan grips his knife. His muscles quiver, stand out like knotted cords against the gleaming skin, waiting for Horta to make the first move. Horta charges. The gleaming fangs, sharper by far than Sabor's, miss the ape-man's leg by a fraction of an inch. Like a flash, Tarzan drops on Horta's back. The brute stops, leaps forward. Tarzan hangs on. The boar weaves from one side to the other, digs its hooks into the moss, lashes its tail. Then, a vicious swing of his head, tusks bared. One of them grazes Tarzan's leg. 
But it's the move that Tarzan's been waiting for. His arm raises and falls. He plunges his knife into the brute's neck. A scream of pain. Oda raises on his punches. Throws himself on his back. Rolls over. Upwards, down, sideways, Tarzan's knife flashes again and again. The gleaming steel sinks into the brute's neck, but Porter is not easily killed. Stretching, squirming, twisting, he throws Tarzan from his back. Like a flash, he turns on his tormentor. The maddened brute is on top of the ape-man. Tarzan thrusts both arms upward, trying to keep those deadly shots from his throat. He raises his knees, strains his back, pushes upwards. The veins in his forehead are almost bursting. A superhuman effort as he forces Porter's head back. Slowly, a fraction of an inch, a little more, more yet. Porter strangles, gasps, closes his eyes, turns his head, turns and draws his right arm back, brings it forward with a blow like a sledgehammer, buries the knife in the brute's throat, and throws the carcass aside. Tarzan jumps to his feet, places his foot on Porter's neck, and from his powerful throat comes the victorious cry of the great ape. jungle for miles around is quiet. Even Numa stirs uneasily at Tarzan's call. Suddenly, Tarzan hears a call the jungle has never heard before. Tarzan stops. The sound comes from the place he's left Tracy. Leaping like a panther, he bounds across the clearing. Heedless of noise, he sweeps aside flanks and pine that bar his path and bursts into the open. The crying is weaker. Tracy, searching for water, has wandered away from the spot where Tarzan left him. He's trapped in the quicksand. His arms burst like flails. His fingers clench and unclench, grasping, striking, clawing, clawing, reaching for nothing in an agony of despair. Tarzan has to swim to be killed. In his frenzy, Tracy pays no attention. The sand is up to his middle. He feels it sucking, pulling, drawing down and down and down. Tarzan reaches the edge of the sand trap, throws himself on the ground. Stretching his arms to Tracy, his toes press themselves into the sand. Tracy gasps, reaching for the ape man's hands. Their hands touch. Tarzan eases himself forward. The soft, squelchy sand gives under his chest. He braces himself. His sinews crack under the pulling, tearing strain. His breath whistles through his feet. He pulls harder, harder. Tracy, his feet held fast by the treacherous man, goes panicky, wise, twist. He struggles harder, sinks deeper, deeper into the quagmire. Tarzan's breath comes in death. Lungs are at the bursting point. His chest heaves with a strain. Tracy's struggles draw him closer, closer, deeper, deeper, further into the bottomless sand. Get this and previous episodes of Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater wherever you get podcasts or by visiting phoenixmedia.us forward slash silverageheroes. Join us again, same bat time, same bat station, for another presentation of Silver Age Heroes Radio Theater. Excelsior!